You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Welcome to our study through the Book of Acts. We're calling it, We Are All Witnesses, Part 2. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the Book of Acts, and get ready to study God's Word with us. Hi there, it's great to have you uh, join me. I'm actually doing this on Friday morning in an empty room here at Rolling Meadows. Um, So my jokes will go over about as good as they usually do. Um... I'm up at the camp right now, and I'm spending time, not right now, but like I will be up at the camp by the time you watch this, and uh, we'll be at the Men of God retreat, and so I'm really excited about all of that kind of thing, but I really did want to be able to share uh, this passage with you. It's meant an awful lot to me and has a very central part to play in the way that I understand ministry and the way that we as a church want to move forward in the days ahead, and so it's kind of... God's intention for this to be a little bit of a visiony sort of thing, but also it's so fantastic that it's in, in the midst of our, our um, teaching about Acts. So Acts 6, verses 1 to 7 is where we'll be in the next, the next few minutes. So if you have a Bible, you can open it and turn it to there. I want you to imagine with me a, uh, a church plant. I've often thought church planters are kind of the entrepreneurs of the Christian church community. They are um, kind of my heroes. I don't know how anyone does that, goes out and just starts a new church out of nothing. I've often thought the people who do that are just just amazing. So when I talk about a church plant, I'm talking about one of my favorite subjects and the, my favorite ideas regarding the church. It's new work of God in a particular place. But I want you to picture a, a church plant that was started, like most church plants, is plants with a vision to reaching out into their community. You know, they, they're planted in some location, maybe in Chicagoland, and they're, and they're going to reach out into the community. Um, they've connected with other churches in the area. They've realized that there is a real need for a gospel church in that area, and uh, they really do want to connect with as many people as, as they possibly can. So in order to do that, they realize that in their area, there's a kind of a low socioeconomic group. And so they decide they're going to start a soup kitchen, right? So this pastor and his core team, they go and they volunteer at this soup kitchen that they've begun. Now, the first week, there's a few people there, but as, as word spreads, there's more and more people from the community coming in, people from all sorts of walks of life, you know, Families who just don't have enough uh, on a given day. You, you, you have uh, people who are homeless. You have folks from all sorts of racial backgrounds. But particularly, there is a large group of African-American folks and a large group of, of, of white people who seem to be kind of in equal numbers. They seem to be coming uh, at the same time. Uh, similarly, the church itself, the leadership of the church, is sort of split between African-American and and white leadership, and so uh, it, the, the church itself, or the soup, soup kitchen, and then the church is, is reflecting that kind of leadership uh, makeup. I want you to imagine, though, that there is uh, a problem that arises. As the soup kitchen continues, there are some times where the, where the white people are serving the soup, and other times where the African-American people are serving the soup, and... Uh, when the white people are serving the soup, when the African-American people coming to get the soup hold their bowl out, they, they get a portion that they perceive to be less than what the other white people are getting who came to, to, to receive from the soup kitchen. At first, they're like, eh, maybe, that's probably not a big deal. It's just our perception, but 
The more they start talking to each other, have you noticed that when I go through the line and the white people are serving us that we're not getting quite as much as the other white people who are getting it? The other African-American folks said, yes, I've actually, I have actually noticed that. I've kind of been thinking about it a little bit, but I didn't want to say anything out loud. Some of the grumbling starts to move through the little community and it raises up to the point where some of the people who are part of the leadership of the church who are African-American, they get approached by their African-American friends and they say, hey, you know what? We think that your, your white partners in ministry are actually kind of, you know, skimping on the soup for people who are, who are, who are black. We, we don't know why. I mean, we don't want to assume necessarily anything, but it, it feels like it's happening because of our, our race. So the African-American folks, when the next time they have a, a, a meeting of the church leadership, they bring us up and they say, you know what, uh, this is a perception among, among people. Well, some of the white leaders hear that, but then they're like, you know what, it's, you guys just are too sensitive. You're, you're making a big deal out of a little thing. It's, I'm sh- it's not intent- intentional. We will try our best to fix it. Of course, the African-American people, why are you getting so upset about this? I mean, you do realize that we have a history of being kind of marginalized and, and treated less than, okay? And maybe this is not one of those cases, but you can understand why we would feel this way, right? And white people are like, yeah, yeah, fine, fine, fine. But as time goes on, they start to realize that actually this is something that is happening. Then African-American people keep pushing back. And so eventually the church has a meeting. That's how you solve all church issues. You have a business meeting. And so they gather together and they have this church meeting. They're gonna talk about this particular issue. And as the meeting goes on, it starts really peaceful, but you can see the camps starting to divide and they kind of follow racial lines and eventually they start yelling at each other and they're angry with each other and things are said that weren't meant to be said and offense was taken by people who didn't, shouldn't have taken offense, but the whole church just explodes on, on that day. Everybody ultimately blames the pastor and his leadership team for not stepping in and doing the right Thing, of course, their view of the right thing is different depending on what team you're on. And then the church dies. That story's made up, but not really. The landscape around us is littered with churches that have fallen apart due to infighting. They're churches that start with a view toward the mission of God. They want to reach out to their community, but eventually they get sidetracked by divisions that are driven by politics or sometimes just pettiness. And the church withers. It, its focus on the mission and reaching out dies because of the distraction and the division of what's going on between the people. It's interesting if you look through the book of Acts, which is what we're studying here in Acts chapter six today. But if you look through the beginning of the book of Acts, what you'll realize is that there's a few things that Luke, the author, brings up that are threats to the mission of God going forward, right? For people hearing the gospel message and responding in repentance and faith. There's certain things that can happen that will stop that mission from moving. I mean, one of them is, as we've seen already up to this point, persecution. You know, uh, religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders come in and they want to stop 
the apostles from preaching and teaching, and so they tell them, don't you do this anymore, or else. Beat them, in fact, on some occasions. Another way that it stops is, is hypocrisy within the church itself. In Acts chapter five, there's this couple named Ananias and Sapphira, and they lie to the church about how much money they have given to the church. They want everyone to think more highly of them than they probably should, so they lie a little bit, you know, pad their stats a little bit so that everybody thinks more highly of them. And of course, Peter in that moment says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, and these two people die. It's almost like Luke is saying by putting this passage there, you know, hypocrisy will kill this whole mission. You know, if people look at the church and they say it is filled with people who say one thing and do another, it's not gonna work. And then there's this. Division. Distraction by, by division. In this passage we're gonna study here, that's what we're talking about. How, how does the church avoid Death by division. What's interesting about the passage before we get into it is in the first verse of it, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. And so this is the issue that they're gonna deal with, but before it happens, they're increasing in number. And then if you go to the very end of the passage, in the last verse, it says, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied Greatly, So it begins with the increase of the disciples. It ends with the increase of the disciples. The question is, what did they do in the middle to deal with this complaint in order to protect the mission from being sidetracked? How, in other words, do you avoid the mission getting killed the focus of the church on its community getting killed by infighting, by division, by distraction. Because this is something I hate to tell you that we still do, right? There's all sorts of distractions and divisions within the church. How do we know that those things are going to happen? It's kind of natural for them to happen because we're sinful people, but we don't want it to stop the mission going forward like it has in so many other churches who have shown up for a moment and had a great impact in their community and then, and then died because of some political issue or pettiness. How do we avoid death by division? Look, in this passage, I'm just gonna point out two things that seem to happen here. One, these people were uncompromising in their calling. That's, that's one of the ways they stopped from getting distracted. They were uncompromising, the apostles, on their calling. And second, they were compromising on their power. So if we wanna move forward in uh, integrity and fullness and impact, it seems to me that we need to be uncompromising on our calling and compromising on our power. So let's, let's walk those two one after the other. Here's the first, be uncompromising on our calling. I want you to look at verse one in Acts six again with me. Now in these days, when the disciples, as I noted, they were increasing in number, so more and more people coming to faith in Christ, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. 
I need to deal with these two terms, uh, Hellenists and Hebrews. What you, what you need to know is that if you, if you uh, looked inside the Christian community at, in Jerusalem at the time, what you would find is there was kind of two racial groups there. But they were all Jewish, okay? Everybody was Jewish, but there was sort of a cultural background piece. So maybe the wrong thing to say is racial groups. You had Jews, some of whom had stayed around Jerusalem, had lived in Israel, lived near the temple. They tended to be people who were perceived to be more pious and committed to the temple, to the law of God. And then there were others, for a variety of reasons, might have been moved outside of Israel over the years. Maybe it was because in the Babylonian captivity they were taken far off and their family just stayed there over the years. Maybe it was during the Roman Empire it was easy to travel. So maybe some people just traveled, you know, just like you might decide, hey, I want to move to San Diego and you, you go and live in San Diego. And, you know, they moved to Greece and they thought Greece was lovely. But now they've come back. There's a group that what divides them is usually the language, their first language, right? Most of them knew Hebrew, but the Hebrew Christians didn't know Greek very well. And the Greek Christians, the Greek Jewish Christians, they spoke Greek. And so in the gathering, you could figure out who was who. Now, what's important for you to know is that if you were a Greek-speaking Jewish Christian, you were viewed as being kind of culturally inferior to the Hebrews. I mean, you'd mixed and mingled with a, a foreign culture, which was a kind of against the law of God in all those days gone by. Remember, you're supposed to move into the land that you're not supposed to mix or mingle with. Don't marry their wives and don't mix and mingle with their gods. So there were some people who were Hebrews who looked at the Greek-speaking folks and said, you know, you guys have kind of given in to the Greek way of thinking. You're not as culturally pure as we are and you're not as religiously pure as we are because if you really cared about the law of God and the service of God at the temple you would have showed up in Jerusalem and done those duties so you can imagine in this in this community what you've got is a bunch of Greek speaking Jewish Christians who like to stick together because they thought of themselves as being less than and the Hebrew folks were like, yeah, you kind of are less than. You have an immigrant community who's moved from afar, who sounds different in what they say, and they're primed for offense. You know that. I mean, lots of immigrant communities around the world, they're primed for offense. It might not be intentional or anything, but they just they get sick of the stink eye that people give them. You look different. You sound different. So you've got these two groups, and what's going on here is that a complaint, all right, a, a murmuring, a talking behind the scenes has arisen. Why? Well, well, because their widows, and by their we're referring to the Hellenists, their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution uh, in Israel at the time if you were a, a, an orphan or a widow, you had you had no man to help you out and deliver you from the harms of the society as a whole. You needed a man in order to get money because he is the only one who could work, usually. Or he's the only one who can make a significant income. You had to be tied to your father. You had to be tied to, your, you had to, be tied to a brother. You had to be tied to a, a husband. 
So if your husband dies and you're an older woman, um, you went into great uh, threat of, of poverty. So the churches would come around and they'd, they created these things called widow's roles. They looked around and they said, well, who's a widow in our community so that we can take care of them and make sure that they don't fall into poverty? So the church had roles of widows, you know, like names, lists of widows that they were going to take care of. In this case, some of those widows were from the Greek-speaking Hellenist group, and some of those widows were from the Hebrew, you know, stay at home in Jerusalem and be religiously pious group. But there's this feeling among the Greek-speaking folks that, you know, they're not getting as much soup as the Hebrew widows are. And so what you've got is a, a murmuring, a complaint that starts to spread. It starts to spread around. Can I just pause just for a second? Because I, I, I do want to point something out here, right? It, it, isn't it interesting how petty divisions have always been a challenge for the church? When I read this passage, I'm like, oh my goodness, you're just like us. Not specifically maybe in this area, although the church has in the United States has its own challenges with you know, racial issues and things these days, but some people will end up saying something like, oh, if we could just get back to the New Testament church and just you know, be pure like them, you know, where they were sharing everything and stuff, and that was true. You know, Book of Acts says stuff like that, but it's also true that Ananias and Sapphira are there. It's also true that this kind of thing happened. This kind of petty infighting happens. The truth is they were just like us. There's no need to go back. We're experiencing the same thing right now. Later on in the book of Acts, there's this really interesting section where the apostle Paul and his buddy Barnabas, who are like they're missionaries teaming together to travel all over the place. In Acts 16, it says that they have a sharp disagreement over whether or not this guy John Mark, who they took along on their first trip and kind of bailed out halfway through, whether on the second trip they should take him along. And Barnabas is like, no, you, we should bring him along because we should be compassionate and kind and everyone loves a second chance. Everyone deserves one anyway. This could be a redemption story, Paul. And Paul's like, listen, mission work is not for the faint of heart and John Mark is the faint of heart, so he can't come. Barnabas, we should bring him and employ him. Paul, no way, get rid of him. And so there's a sharp disagreement. I love reading that passage because I'm like, oh my gosh, just like in our church today where sharp disagreements happen. It's almost like Luke is trying to say that you should probably expect some of this stuff to happen, these ruptures. The question isn't how do you stop them? The question is what do you do when they they take place. What do you do so that the mission of the church doesn't get sidetracked by those kinds of things? And so this is what we're dealing with here. So let's see what they did. The 12 then, 12 apostles, right? They summoned the full number of the disciples, which would have been thousands at this point. There's a lot of people, you know, coming to faith in Jesus and they're disciples of him. And so they gather together and they have a business meeting. And they said, the, the apostles said, look, it's, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. 
Now, what you need to know at this point is, is they're not saying, look, the serving of tables is beneath us. Do you not know who we are? Like, I'm Dr. Peter. I'm not gonna spend my time with the riffraff. That, it's not, that's not what they're do- doing. It's not an elitist kind of thing. They're also not saying that the serving of tables is unnecessary or meaningless. They recognize by addressing the issue that this is an issue that needs to be dealt with. It's an important issue that is bringing division to the church. But they are saying, so they're not saying those things, but they, they are saying that the word of the God, if it stops being proclaimed, the mission will die. The whole thing is built upon the proclamation of the word of God. It is the fuel for the mission, which is why we're here. And this thing, this little fight that's going on in the community has the potential to pull us to the side. We will not, we will not let that happen. Now, I want you to see their rationale here, okay? Why it is that they're so adamant about the preaching of the word of God. Because if you go in other parts of scripture, one of the things you find very quickly is the proclamation, the preaching of God's word is the thing. It's the switch that allows people, that gives people the opportunity to come to faith in Christ. In other words, if you do not preach, they will not come. Somebody has to go out and call them with the gospel. Uh, Romans 10, 14, Paul writes, how then will they call on him, right? You want people to call on the name of the Lord that they might be saved. How will they call on him in who they've not believed? But how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? You want them to believe, but in order to believe, they have to hear. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The only way for them to hear is preaching. Or I should do the arrows the other way. See, the preaching of the word means that they hear the word and that they believe. So if you want people, and ultimately then they call upon the name of the Lord. So if you want people to call on the name of the Lord and be saved, it starts with proclamation of the word of God. If you stop that, if you just go out and do you know, social work, as important as it is, and it is, you've basically turned off the spigot of the mission. Another verse that says similarly, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's God's very word. And it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So scripture is profitable for these things. So that, what's the purpose of it or the result of it? The man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If you want to grow people in Christ and equip them for the work of God, if you wanna equip them with the ability to do the right thing, the way you do that is you give them the Bible. The way you do that is you proclaim the word of God. That's why Jesus said in the Great Commission, you know, make disciples of baptizing and teaching them to obey all that I commanded you because that's how you make a disciple. If you stop teaching, 
If you stop proclaiming this scripture, not only will people not hear and believe, the people who hear and believe will not grow. Everything, everything regarding the mission rests upon consistent, careful proclamation of the word of God. And the apostles, they, they know this. Have you ever seen those, uh, they call them air dancers? They're, they're, they're usually in front of car dealerships or uh, you know, a laundromat who wants to draw attention into their business. You have the guys out in front sometimes who have the signs, hey, come in here, come in here. And then other times they just, you know, they get this air dancer, which is basically a balloon shaped like a human being, and they blow air through it, and it, it flops all over, and it's hard when you're driving. You're like, what is that? And then you realize, oh, it's just an advertising ploy. I've seen one of those that is like drooping badly because the little air blower that blows into it is not pumping out enough air. Or if you shut it down, it just drops to the ground. This is a really good image for what the, the, the apostles believed, that if you stop, if you stop the proclamation of the word, the blowing of the Spirit's work through the proclamation of the word of God, it will stop the dancing of the gospel. It will stop it. So you always gotta make sure the air is blowing, which is exactly what they're trying to do. So my, my point is really simple. The apostles don't compromise on their calling. The best thing they can do for the church is to preach and to pray. The best thing they can do is not settle the issue as important as it is, is to stick to the preaching and the prayer. Um, unfortunately, the threat of distraction like this and division is as real for us as it is for them. So let's turn from what they're facing and let's think about similar things that, that we face. I, I'm just gonna, this is kind of me stepping to the side now and saying, let me give you a few examples of where I think this kind of thing has been happening in the church recently. And you can disagree with me about the specific examples if you like. But here are three of them over the last, I guess, 20 years or so that I've seen as a Christian. This, the church get distracted into a political game or into some infighting or something and the mission just kind of boom, dying. Uh, one of them was back in 2003. I think it was when the Iraq war first began. I remember talking to um, a friend and I said to them at the time, you know, I don't really know much about the weapons of mass destruction claim. Those of you who remember those days, it was claimed that the Iraq had these weapons of mass destruction, so the United States was gonna go into Iraq in response for what happened supposedly at, uh, at 9-11. And when I say supposedly, it, it didn't seem like there was a lot of evidence that Iraq was involved, but the belief was, oh, Saddam Hussein has all of these weapons of mass destruction, so we gotta go in and we gotta take care of it. I remember asking my friend, who was very adamant that this was something that we had to do. I remember asking my friend, do you ever wonder how this action by the United States will affect the gospel and its proclamation among the people of Iraq? I mean, a lot of those people equated the West with Christianity. So if the West comes and they start attacking the Iraqis, I, I was just wondering, like, how, does, how is the mission affected by that? I remember my friend getting very upset with me. He said, aren't you an American? I was like, yes, I am an American. 
But I'm a Christian first, right? Like the United States and its foreign policy can succeed or fail. The United States economy can succeed or fail. That's not gonna change any, any of my commitment to Christ. I'm a Christian first. And yes, are these important things? Yes, it's very important that we bring justice in places where injustice is taking place. And I cheer for the U.S. when it does that. But the real question is about the gospel and its proclamation. All right, another, another example, a um, little closer to home. You guys remember a few years ago, it's only been a few years now, where the whole uh, riots over the George Floyd uh, killing happened. I was, of course, outside of the country at the time, so I felt like I had this sort of um, perspective on it where I could hear, I was just sort of watching as an outsider to some of what was happening in the, in the United States. Um, I remember thinking and hear, well, hearing a lot about different churches that were getting very upset with this particular you know, issue. It kind of um, showed the, some of the racial challenges that the church has faced over the years, legitimate challenges between, that African-Americans were coming forward, like in the beginning of the story that I said, and they were coming forward and saying, you guys, do you do realize how, how we feel like we've been treated all over these years, and it still continues today when we go into stores and people give a stink eye, or we drive down the street and a police officer stops us. This was their perception. Just like the perception of these Greek-speaking Jewish Hellenists <laughs> felt like they were getting skimped in the, in, in the daily distribution. And they were saying this out loud, but others were saying, hey, you know what, you need to be quiet. You're bringing race into this subject, and you're bringing race, blah, blah, blah. And I, I remember thinking to myself, this is a really important issue. It's a big time issue, but why is every church right now focused so much on this particular issue to the detriment of the mission? Because this issue is important and valuable as it is, and it is. is not the mission of proclamation of the gospel. Should we deal with it? Yes. This passage will show that we should deal with it, but we should deal with it in a way that does not distract us from the, the gospel and its proclamation. Like I said, you can agree or disagree with my examples. Here's my, here's my third one. Um, how about, how about recently we all have an opinion about COVID? I mean, honestly, you talk to anybody and they'll tell, give you an opinion about, you know, we, have, we know words like PCR tests, well, they're good and they're bad. And the vaccine, well, it's good or it's bad. It should be mandated, it shouldn't be mandated. Why aren't you wearing a mask? Why are you wearing a mask? And that whole fight has come right into the church so that we're all kind of like you know, amateur epidemiologists right now because we read on Twitter or Google what, what, what we can believe. And we all have a view on this. And we bring it into, we fight about it. Is it important? Yes. Should we obey the government? Should we not obey the government? Is it good for people? Is it not good for people? It's important. These are important issues that should be sorted out. The problem is it becomes such a main focus of the church that the mission of the church, which is why we're here, the proclamation of the gospel, gets lost. Because we're so busy fighting about our particular political agenda or epidemiological viewpoint. Now, we, we've got to keep the proclamation of the gospel front and center. We, we must, like the apostles, be uncompromising on our calling. Right, that's my first 
Point. Second point, shorter. I wanna show you that even though we're uncompromising in the, on, on our mission, on our calling, we, we should be compromising on our power. Look at verse two with me. Uh, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. This is where we just stopped our last section. Therefore, now here's their plan. Therefore, brothers, I want you to pick out from among you uh, seven men. Remember that. There's seven men who are chosen to do this job. They have to be of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and we're going to appoint them to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word, right? We're going to stick with the things that really matter in terms of the mission going forward, okay? Okay. Here's what I wanna show you really quickly. There's a number of, there's four things that I wanna point out regarding how they made this decision that are really interesting. Here's the first. The guys that they chose were, were qualified, right? P- pick out among you seven men of good repute. That means that their reputation was upstanding in the community. When people were asked about them at their workplace or whatever, they're like, no, he's a really good ethical Guy, full of integrity. They also had to be full of the Spirit, meaning they had to demonstrate maybe the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And those are not feelings that they had so much as things that you could say to them and say, that person looks like a full of the Spirit Christian because of their character and the way that they act. And they needed to be full of wisdom. We're not just gonna pick anybody you know, whether or not they have any kind of thought regarding how to fix this problem. We need to have some people who have some experience and thoughtfulness about this issue. The reason I point this out is that usually when churches come to pick people to solve issues, they usually pick the rich people. They usually pick the people who've, you know, made a killing in the stock market. They usually pick that kind of thing for whatever reason, because it's like, well, they're successful. What's interesting here is that the successfulness is not really in play. It's gotta be people who have good reputation, have good character, and they're people who have the ability to reason through some of this stuff in a remarkable way, in in, in a clear way. You had to have all three of those. If you just were like really good at solving problems, but your character stunk, no, no, we're not including you. Leadership in God's church is a more important thing than just the pragmatics of it. So they they were qualified. I said there were four of these. Uh, The other one is they were wisely appointed. I I want you to see this uh, right here. Therefore, brothers, pick out seven men of good repute, full of the spirit wisdom, who we're gonna appoint to this duty. We're gonna devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, okay? I'll go down here. Um, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. So here's who they chose. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, it's not Pumbaa, and, and Parmenas, Parmesan, and Santa Claus, a proselyte of Antioch. It's not Santa Claus, it's just, I'm goofing around. Uh, have you ever been down and uh, seen two stores on the street and maybe they're, you know, they're law 
firms. And, and the, the law firm of Stephen, James, and John. And right next door to it is maybe the law firm of Jagmeet, Harvinder, and Balbir. Now, when you're looking at it, you instinctively know that there are two different, these, these are law firms that have partners of different racial backgrounds. One of them is probably kind of Western, probably white North Americans, and the other one is an Indian law firm. And you know that by the name. Similarly, in their day, there were certain names that were Greek and there were certain names that were Hebrew. The problem that they're having is a bunch of Greek-speaking Jews are frustrated because they think they're getting, they're getting held back or they're getting less than what they deserve. And so they're the ones making the complaint. So who do they choose? This name is Greek. 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 They chose a bunch of Greek-speaking guys to solve a Greek-speaking offense. It's, it's amazing. It's like a church, if, if there's a racial disagreement in the church and there are, are African-Americans feeling like they're getting slighted, it's like the, the church saying, right, um, we're gonna appoint all the Africans. They're the ones feeling slighted and they're the ones who know their community and they're the ones who are full of wisdom on how to fix things for their community. We're gonna appoint all of them to it. Not a single white person's gonna be a part of it. Some people would fight about that. In our day, they'd be like, well, wait a minute, they're gonna be biased. Yeah. But they believed that they were full of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit was actually gonna lead them. So they were qualified, they were wisely appointed, and they were empowered. Notice at the end here of this little section, um, they set before the apostles these guys, and, and they prayed and they laid their hands. They laid their hands on, on all of them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. They laid their hands up. In other words, they're laying their hands on them saying, we trust the Holy Spirit's work through you, brother. Brother, brother, brother. And, and they let them loose. They empower them. I remember when I was working as a, budget car rental, I was on the phone with somebody we were trying to rent a car to, and the, my boss was in the background, and he, was, he kept saying to me, say exactly what I say. Repeat exactly after me. And I was like, this is really weird. I said, do you want to talk to him? No, no, no. Just you repeat exactly what I tell you. And so he would say something, and I would kind of summarize it. He'd say something, and I'd kind of summarize it. Anyway, once the phone call's over, he said, what's wrong with you? Can't you repeat after me? You didn't repeat exactly what I said, to which I was like, look, if you, if you want somebody who's gonna be a robot, you should just hire one. Like, if you're gonna hire me and you're gonna let me do this job, you should empower me to do the job. If you wanna do the job yourself, you should go get a little robot, a little parrot, and you can parrot everything you say. That's not what happens here. You don't have micromanagers standing over the tops of them saying, I'm not sure we can really trust these Greek-speaking people. I mean, after all, they're from outside of Jerusalem. So let's just make sure they make the right decision. No, it was actual full trust. You guys are gonna make the right decision because we can't sacrifice the preaching of the word of God and, and prayer. 
The last thing that's really interesting, and you notice I made a point of this when it was way back here. Seven men. (laughs) Seven men? You could have picked one guy. Why do you pick seven? Why are seven people necessary to make this decision? Well, this is a common theme in the Bible. Jesus chooses 12. I know there are theological reasons for that. You know, he's reconstituting Israel and all that, but he also wanted friends around. He also believed that it was important for a team to be doing the ministry together. The apostle Paul, he never goes anywhere alone. If he has to go somewhere alone, he's like, hey, I'm not going. I need to have my friends with him, with me. When he's in prison and he's dying in prison, he just wants to have a friend. He begs and pleads, come visit me, come be a part of the ministry because he knows it gets horribly lonely and that You know, we're a body, he says in 1 Corinthians 12. And all the gifts working together make it happen. Right. My point, and the thing I really want to focus as we finish here, is that plural leadership in the Bible, in the New Testament, plural leadership, it means more than one person working together in a team, is frustrating Right? It's slow, it's irritating, but it's biblical. It seems to be the way that God wants his church to function. You know, this isn't, that's not the way that our society thinks of leadership. Plurality bogs stuff down. There's a girl joke about committees. What, what, what is a committee? It's a group of the unwilling picked from the unfit to do the unnecessary. You can hear the attitude of people of our day. Come on. Why would we pick a committee? If we want to get something done, we'd have, you know, like one person pick to do the thing and then we give them full power and they could just, you know, go out and do everything they want. And if nobody wants to do it, they could just get out of my way, throw them off. That tends to be the way that our culture views leadership in many cases. We, we love the lone, I can do it all by myself leader, right? That's why we love Jason Bourne. He doesn't need any help. Jason Bourne didn't need any, need any help. Like 10 guys attack Jason Bourne. He's got it taken care of, right? Those of you who are older remember like when I was a kid, I watched the, the Kung Fu movies with Bruce Lee and there's like 100 guys around him and he's beating everyone up. And you're, afterwards you're like, yeah, nobody can take Bruce Lee. He alone can dominate all things. We, we love the single hero movies, the single hero idea me against the world and we can take care of it. Let nobody get in my way. I did it my way. Sorry, Frank Sinatra. (laughs) Christians, I think, have embraced that idea. You can see it when you go on websites of some churches. On the front of their website is the picture of the pastor. You know, here I am. This this church is, is equal to me. You, you will equate this church with me and my personality. Sometimes when we talk about churches, we're like, hey, do you know about that particular church? And you're like, oh yeah, that's Joe's, Joe Smith's church. Yeah, you can hear it. We equate the church with the individual who's preaching. That, that's, that's the church, see? Single leader, man of God appointed, touch not the Lord's anointed. We say things like that as if there's a single person that's anointed in the New Testament for that to happen. And yes, there are Gideons in the Old Testament stuff, but when you come to the New Testament, what you find is teams. You find teams over and over and over again. In fact, Paul, when he has a chance to tell uh, 
tell Titus what he's supposed to do when he's making these churches function. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, elders in every town, as I directed you. I don't want you to just appoint one elder here and one elder there and one elder there, and they're just gonna run the church like they're some kind of dictator. I, I want you to appoint a plurality of qualified men who, who can do the work together. So look, let me finish by just giving you three benefits of this kind of leadership and why it's so important for us as a church to be doing it. Here, here are three benefits. Um, if you go down the path of broad-based leadership, team-based leadership, the church is not overly dependent on any one person. I remember years ago, I had a young guy who was working together with me and he started a ministry. It was a ministry to young adults. It became quite popular, in fact. He was a really good organizer, but he called himself the CEO of the ministry. That was, I mean, literally, he would actually put posters that said, come to this particular ministry, CEO, and then he put his name. It's like, oh, I don't, don't know if that's kind of way we view it in the church, but I was too young to give any kind of like feedback to him about that. But what happened, of course, is when he decided to leave the church, the whole ministry died because everything was hanging and dependent upon him. Lasting ministry will involve many people. Lasting ministry works on the principle of next man up. Lasting ministry has virtual benches of people who you're training and equipping so that when the first guy, the first girl depart, the next one's there. Broad. Broad-based. Team-based ministry. And secondly, um, the church benefits with this team-based ministry, benefits from different gifts and, and perspectives. When I first became a lead pastor years and years ago, I think it was about 16 years ago when I, in my old church, um, they hired me and then they kind of, they said to me, the, the elder board got together and they said, listen, we're happy to have you as our lead pastor, but one of the things we need you to know is that you, we, you need a sober second thought. That was their language. You need a sober second thought. Probably because I get drunk on my opinions or something. What they meant by that is, Jeff, you have, a, you have a desire to have 15 different ideas and you're excited about all of them. What you need is someone to curate those ideas and to say, that one stinks, that one stinks, this one has potential. Ever since then, I've come to realize they were absolutely right that when I am surrounded by a team of people with different giftings, everything works. But if you leave me alone, man, we end up doing stuff that you're like, what why are we doing, why are we doing this? The church benefits from different gifts and perspectives. I've been working together with a lead team here at Harvest for the last little while, and we've been facing some challenging, difficult decisions, and I'm just telling you that without them, I don't know what I would have done. One of them is putting up Excel spreadsheets everywhere and following a procedure, and I'm like, this is killing me. We're sitting in a room for 10 hours having a meeting. Why can't we have the meeting in 20 minutes? But everything Everything on those spreadsheets was integral to what we were trying to do. I thank God for the team. We're better as a team. And finally, you know, broadly led churches can always grow in impact. Single led churches can only grow to the, le to the left, to the height of their leader. But broad churches can grow much bigger. Towers of impact. My daughter when she was little, we, I was making mega blocks. 
and I was building, I always wanted to see how high I could get the tower with like a single block at the bottom and then have it go up. And of course it would always fall over. And she would tell me repeatedly, daddy, daddy, build it bigger. Daddy, build it bigger, wider, build it wider, build it wider at the bottom, build it wider. Okay, honey, we built it wider. And of course then, because it's wider and it's moving it between us like the Burj Al Khalif or whatever, and it, it's going way up high, you know, Eiffel Tower high. And that's the way it works. The broader the base of qualified, full of the spirit leaders that you have appointed to work together in a team, the higher the impact can go. So look, um, we are Harvest Bible Chapel. Our goal is not to just rely on one or two, but on many for the leading and flourishing of this church. We, we want, we aim to build it wider. I want you to join us. And let's just see how high this tower of impact can go. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.